Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Lord, we affirm, reaffirm what we've just sung that we have tasted and we have seen that our Lord Jesus Christ is good and we are content to have taken our refuge in him. He alone can satisfy. Lord, we have, we have tried to find satisfaction in things that this world can offer and, and we have found everything that this world offers uh, to be lacking. Only Christ can fill us up and only he can keep filling us up forever. Lord, and, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the truth of that, um, that that is not just some empty phrase that your word has thrown out there, but uh, it, is, it is certainly true. We have, we have experienced it. And Lord, if, if there's anyone here who has not yet tasted and seen that you are good, may you, through uh, your word uh, being read and being sung and being preached, may they come and taste the sweetness of knowing who you are and what you have done to rescue sinners and what you are continuing to do. Uh, so, Lord, bless our time in your word. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it. Help us to understand it and to believe it and to live in the light of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Lord willing, we're finishing Galatians 2 today. So open up to Galatians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 20 to 21. And just so we can get a running start, uh, I'm going to start actually with verse 11, just so we can get the whole context. So I'll read chapter 2, 11 through the end of the chapter. Verse 11, but when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. As I read 
Paul's words in verses 20 to 21 uh, just struck me how he is helping Peter to realize what he has in Christ and how much he would be giving up if he were to forsake Christ and try to get to God through some other means, through keeping the law. And to help Peter understand that, Paul speaks from his own personal experience of what he has in Christ, what he has gained in Christ, and why he will never, ever leave Christ. And just trying to think about maybe common occurrences in life that we hear of that can kind of give us an analogy to understand that. I was thinking about times when we hear of a man who walks away from his wife and children in order to chase after another woman. And when we hear of something like that, how do we respond? We're appalled at that. And we shake our heads and we think that man doesn't know what he's giving up, right? He had this life that he's thrown away to pursue some fleeting desire that he had. If only he had taken the time to think about the blessings he already has, he never would have done something so evil and so stupid. That's what we think when we hear of stories like that. And from the outside looking in, seeing what such a person is giving up, it can be hard for us to understand how someone can become so blind to the blessings that they have to the point that they're willing to just throw it all away for a lesser thing. But if we pause to examine ourselves, we would, I believe, begin to realize how many blessings we ourselves take for granted. That maybe there's someone on the outside looking into our lives and seeing what we are taking for granted, what we are willing to give up for the sake of some newer, shinier thing that we see passing by. And, and that shouldn't surprise us because that is what sin does. Sin blinds you and it deceives you and it leads you to be discontent with what God has given you. That's why in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer says this to the believers that he's writing to. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Remember uh, the context in which this chapter is found. Paul here is giving an account of a confrontation that he had with Peter. So let's just remind ourselves what's going on here. During Peter's visit to Antioch, Peter, who was a Jew, used to eat Gentile food with Gentile people. And that was something that violated the law of Moses. Why was Peter willing to violate the law of Moses? Well, it was because he had recognized that under the new covenant that God had instituted through Christ, Peter was no longer to view the Gentiles as unclean. But then what happened? Then you have certain men come up from Jerusalem, and Peter changes his behavior. He stops eating with the Gentiles due to his fear of what the Jews who would look down on such behavior would think. He began acting like the law of Moses with all its food laws was still in force, that it was still a barrier between Jew and Gentile. Peter began acting like Jesus, and faith in Jesus was not enough to bring those two groups together. 
Peter had momentarily stopped living by faith, and he had instead begun living by the works of the law. He became sinfully afraid of what other men thought, and so he started to become blind to what he had in Christ. And he became, for a little bit, willing to give that up for the sake of pleasing men. He began to value more highly what men thought than what he had in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul rushes to Peter's aid in order to encourage him, in order to keep him from becoming blinded by the deceitfulness of sin. Peter, in verses 20 to 21 here, he reminds Peter, Paul reminds Peter of what he has in Christ by sharing what he has in Christ, right? He says it from the first person in verses 20 to 21. He reminds Peter of what Peter has in Christ, and he seeks to stir up within Peter a holy hatred of the idea of abandoning Christ. Just like we're appalled to hear about a man abandoning his family, so Paul wants Peter to be appalled at the idea of leaving Jesus for the sake of pleasing men. And as we see how Paul helps Peter to persevere in his faith in Christ, we're going to learn two important ways that we ourselves can persevere in our own faith. And those two ways are, first, we need to be grateful for what is ours in Christ. Just like Paul was helping Peter to be reminded of of what he had in Christ. And second, we are to be galled or embittered or provoked by the thought of ever abandoning Christ. And that's what Paul is going to help Peter to do. So first... Be grateful for what is yours in Christ. What is ours in Christ? Well, we're going to see two things in in verse 20. uh, Liberty from sin and love from the Son of God. That is what we have in Christ. That is what we are to be grateful for. That is what will knit our hearts to the Lord such that we're never willing to abandon him. So first, let's look at the first thing we have in Christ that we should be grateful for, and that is liberty from sin. Let's look at verse 20. What does Paul continue to say to Peter? He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul begins by saying to Peter, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, we already established last week what what realm of theology Paul is thinking about. What is he thinking about when he says, I've been crucified with Christ? What do we call that? Union with Christ, right? Union with Christ. Paul himself was not personally nailed to a cross, right? But Jesus to whom Paul had been united by faith, had been nailed to a cross. Why was that necessary? Well, it was necessary because Paul, as a sinner, had done what? He had broken the law of God. And the law of God demands what of lawbreakers? Demands that they die, that they be executed for having broken that law. Jesus, although he had perfectly obeyed the law, took Paul's place, and he paid that penalty of death for Paul. In other words, Christ's crucifixion had counted for Paul. 
That's why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Under the law, in God's eyes, it's as though Paul was crucified. It's as though he paid the penalty for his law-breaking. But really, it was Jesus who did it for him. Christ was his representative. Christ was his substitute. So as far as God's heavenly courtroom was concerned, Paul was free and clear of everything that the law demanded. So we see that that legal aspect of union with Christ, right? But union with Christ is a far deeper and broader thing than just legal realities. Because what does Paul go on to say in verse 20? He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This hints that there is more to union with Christ than simply him being our legal representative. Through faith in Christ, Paul not only died to the law's demands and penalty, but he also died to himself. What does he say there? It is no longer I who live, right? Think with me for a moment. Before you came to Christ, before you were born again, what kind of person were you? What, yeah, a sinner. What kind of descriptions does the Scripture give us about who we were before we were made a new creation in Christ? Well, let's go to Ephesians 2, where we find one of those descriptions. Paul here reminds the Ephesian believers of what kind of people they were before God rescued them. Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan, right? The devil. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature, what? Children of wrath, even as the rest. So that's what we were before we knew Christ. We were dead to God, and we were alive to sin. We were led by lust, not by love. We were servants of Satan, not servants of the Savior. And that reality is why the law of God was never able to save anyone. Because what does the law of God command men to do? If you were to sum up the whole Old Testament in two words or two commandments, what would that be? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But we are born loving who above all? Yes, ourself, right? So the law says, love God above everything else, love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll live. But we are born loving myself above everyone else, and so we die, right? That's why the law never saved anyone, because it is given to those who are prone to breaking God's law. It is given to those who are at war with God and who worship self. The Bible has a name for who we used to be apart from Christ. 
And that name is the old man, right? The old man. And when you come to Christ, do you know what happens to that old man or that old woman? Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 6. Paul tells us what happens to that old man or that old woman once we come to Christ. This old self that is bent toward enmity with God, that is ruled by sin. Romans 6, starting in verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Baptism, that is your profession of faith. That is a symbol of your union with Christ. And he's, he's talking here about being joined to Christ through faith, which baptism testifies to, right? Verse 4, Paul goes on, he says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self, literally our old man, was what? Crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. That's what Paul is saying when he says, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. He's talking about that old Paul who was ruled by sin. Once we come to faith in Christ, we are united to Christ. And once we're united to Christ, that old man or that old woman who was ruled and dominated by sin died in the death of Christ, which ended sin's dominion in his or her life. But that's not all that union with Christ accomplishes. Because we don't only die in Christ, but we're also what? We're also raised up to new life with the resurrected Christ so that we can live a new kind of life. And that's what Paul means back in chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 20, when he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He's talking about that new life that he has in the Lord Jesus. Now, it's interesting that Paul says that Christ is in him, in him. But in many other places of Scripture, Paul describes the believer as being in who? In Christ, right? And both things are true. The believer is in Christ, and Christ is in the believer. That is the language of our union with Jesus. And I want to just drill down a little deeper in this idea. So let's go over to John 17, where we see Jesus use both of those expressions in his high priestly prayer of the believer being in the Lord and the Lord being in the believer. So let's go to John 17.
John 17, and uh, let's look at verse 20. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the disciples who were with him in that upper room as they were celebrating the Passover. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And that includes you and me. Verse 21, what does he pray? That they may all be one. So he's speaking of unity there. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be what? In us, right? In us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So there's, there's Jesus using that one phrase, uh, us being in him. Then verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Verse 23, Jesus says, I in them. So he uses both phrases. Verse 21, he talks about us being in him. And verse 23, he talks about him being in us. So Paul is not using any new concept here. Uh, Let's go back to John 15, where Jesus gives us a helpful illustration of what he's talking about. Because it it's kind of abstract out there. What does it mean that I'm in the Lord and, and he's in me? What does that even mean? Well, let's go to John 15, where we see Jesus give us a helpful metaphor. Verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, there's that language, in me, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. There's that language again. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. So what's the picture he gives of us being in him and him being in us? A vine and its branches, right? Just as a a branch is connected to the vine, in the vine, so that vine is also in the branches. Just that's, that's like our relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's a life-giving sort of union, a life-giving union. As the branch draws upon the life of the vine to which it is attached, so believers draw upon Christ's divine resurrection life. And we draw on the life of Christ in such a way that we're enabled to do what? 
to bear fruit, right? If we are cut off from Christ, if we're cut off from the the vine, we're no longer able to bear fruit, right? Here, back in Galatians 2, Paul is showing us that union with Christ, it does not only free us from the law's demands and penalties. It does something beyond that. It also frees us from sin and self, and it delivers us into the freedom of being able to live for God. While we were under the law, we were cut off from the vine, and we could not bear fruit for God. All we could do was bear fruit for death and rot and head for the furnace. But once we became engrafted into the Lord Jesus, we began to be able to draw on his life. And all of a sudden, instead of being dead, we're alive. And all of a sudden, we can begin living for God rather than self. That's what union with Christ does for us. We are free from the tyranny of sin. We are free to do what God wants us to do. That is what we have in Christ, liberty from sin. It's because of Christ living in us. Now, how is it that Jesus dwells within us? Well, take a quick glance over at chapter 4 and verse 6, because I thought Jesus is up in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. That's true. But look at chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's how Christ dwells in the believer, through his Spirit. So that's the first thing that we have in Christ that we're to be grateful for. Freedom from sin, freedom to do what God wants us to do. Now we come to the second thing we're to be grateful for, and that is that we have love from the Son of God. Let's look at verse 20 again of chapter 2. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul here makes it clear that when he said, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, he didn't mean to say that he was now a robot. He didn't mean to say that his mind got sucked out and Christ entered him and was controlling him like, a, like an operator drives a skid loader or something like that. No, he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But then he goes on to say, the life which I now live. He's still Paul. He's still the one living his life, but he's not the same old Paul, right? He says, I no longer live, but on the other hand, he says, the life that I now live. The life that he's now living is not the life that he was living. He's still Paul, but he's a new Paul. His life has been transformed by the Jesus who now dwells within him. And yet, not everything is new, because what does he say? He says, the life which I now live, where? In the flesh, right? He still lives in his flesh. What does Paul mean by flesh there? Well, flesh can mean different things depending on the context in which it is found. In this context, he simply means his mortal body. He hasn't been resurrected yet. He's still waiting for the day of resurrection. He's still in this same body, but it's a, it's a new life now. He's got Christ in him. 
and the way he lives now is by faith in the Son of God. By faith in the Son of God. That is how you live the new life that you gain in the Lord Jesus. But think about Peter. When Peter withdrew his fellowship from the Gentile believers, how had he begun trying to live his life? He, was, he started trying to live it how? Yeah, by the law, by the works of the law. And if he continues down that road, what is Peter forfeiting? We, we already looked a couple weeks ago at verses 15 to 16. Justification is by how? By faith in Christ. But if I stop believing in Jesus and I start trying to go back to getting to God by the works of the law, what am I forfeiting? Justification, right? That's what I'm forfeiting. And now, on top of that, Paul is talking about being united with Christ. And having been united with Christ, he's freed from sin and he's empowered to live for God. If Peter keeps going down that road of trying to be justified by works from the law, he's cut off from who? From Christ. Which means what? He's enslaved to what? To sin. And he loses all ability to do what? To do what God wants him to do, to bear fruit for God. It is only by being united to Christ, it is only by being in Christ and by having Christ in us that we can be declared righteous by God and that we can be enabled to live a righteous life for God. And the only way that you and I can get ourselves in Christ and get Christ in us is not by the works of the law, it is by faith in him. Peter had started walking down a path that would lead him away from Christ. And the other Jewish believers at Antioch, including Barnabas, had begun following Peter down that path. But in verse 20, Paul is saying, I'm not going to be joining you guys. He's, in verse 20, Paul is drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, Peter, I'm not going to follow you in this. The life that I now live, the old Paul is gone. I, am, I have new life in Christ. And this new life that I now live, I live it by faith in the Son of God. I don't live it by works of the law. And then Paul, he proceeds to really turn the screws on Peter because how does he describe this one in whom he believes? How does he describe this Son of God in whom he believes? He describes him as the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we see here that we see several reasons why Paul is unwilling to follow Peter's lead. If Paul, like Peter, began to live by the works of the law, he'd be giving up justification. He'd be giving up freedom from sin. But what else or who else would he be giving up? The one who loved him and gave himself up for him. So losing justification and losing the power to live a holy life, those aren't the chief reasons why Paul's unwilling to follow Peter, to follow his example. The chief reason that Paul is not going to imitate what Peter's doing is because he's refusing to turn his back on the one who loved him and sacrificed himself for him. Paul is persevering in the faith because of his love 
for Jesus. He is captivated by the fact that the Son of God loves him. He's totally smitten by that reality that the Son of God would love him. We don't have time to go there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 13 to 15, Paul describes himself in his former life of unbelief as a blasphemer. He describes himself as a persecutor and as a violent aggressor. And he describes himself as the chief of sinners. And yet, the Holy Son of God loved him and gave himself up for him. Paul is unwilling to turn his back on this one who has loved him so amazingly. Polycarp was a man who shared the heart of Paul. Anybody heard of Polycarp before? He was a bishop of Smyrna back in the first and second centuries. It's said that he was discipled by the Apostle John. And as an old man, Polycarp was arrested and executed for his faith in Christ. But before his execution, the Roman proconsul tried to pressure him to deny Christ. He said, just deny Jesus and you'll get out of jail. You'll be free. Don't need to get burned at the stake. Just say, Caesar's Lord, and you'll be good. But listen to how Polycarp responded. He said, 80 and six years I have served Christ, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? It was Polycarp's understanding of the love of Christ for him that caused him to endure, to be willing to be burned at the stake. He was unwilling to turn his back on the one who had loved him and given himself up for him. So in verse 20, it's as though Paul is telling Peter, listen, I can't follow you because that would mean abandoning the one who has loved me. Now, how do you think that struck Peter when he heard Paul speak of the one who loved him and gave himself up for him? What do you think the thoughts were that began to roll around in Peter's head? Because we all know how Peter felt about Jesus, right? Peter loved Jesus. After Peter denied Christ three times, it only took one look from Jesus to break his heart and to lead him to repentance. And then after Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus restored Peter to ministry, how did Jesus do it? by giving Peter opportunity to confess his love for Christ three times. Now, we're not told what happened after this confrontation between Peter and Paul, but I imagine that when Peter heard Paul speak of Christ's love, Peter would have remembered that he too, like Paul, was an undeserving recipient of that great love. And I imagine that his heart broke and he repented of his hypocrisy. His love for Christ would not allow him to keep going down that road he had begun to step foot on. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? Well, think of all that you have through faith in Christ. How much do you have to be grateful for that you belong to Christ? First, through faith in Christ, God has declared you to be righteous in his sight. He has credited to you the righteousness of his son. All that Jesus accomplished in obeying the law perfectly and in paying the penalty of the law has been 
credited to you. You go on the website, you, you log into your account, you look what's in, in your account, and you see all the righteousness of Christ. Before you knew Christ, all you could see was red sin, this sin. I, I stuck my tongue out at my sister when I was two years old. I, I looked at such and such with, with ungodly lust. My debit sheet was full, but now that I come to faith in Christ, I log back on and, and I see only credit, righteousness of Christ, and there is no red anywhere. The sin is gone. It's been paid for by the blood of Christ. Second, through faith in Christ, you have been united to Christ. And in being united to Christ, not only have you been justified, but you've also been set free from your slavery to sin. And you've been empowered to begin living for God. Christ himself dwells inside of you through his Holy Spirit, giving you strength to do what God wants you to do. And thirdly, and most profoundly, through faith in Christ, you have the love of the Son of God. And he loved you to the point of laying down his righteous life for you. Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But what were you when Christ laid down his life for you? Were you his friend? You were his enemy, right? What kind of love is that? But now that you have been made his friend by his love, will you turn your back on him and try to get to God some other way? If you know Christ the way Paul knew Christ, no, you will not. No, you will not. You will not be willing to do that. So that, that is one way that we persevere in faith. And we know that God causes all true believers to persevere in faith to the very end. And he uses means to do that. And one of the means is reminding us all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second way that we can persevere in our faith is this. We should be galled at the thought of abandoning Christ. Just as we're appalled, galled, and bittered by the thought that a man would abandon his family, how much more should we be galled at the thought of abandoning Christ? Let's look at verse 21. What, is, what does Paul say in verse 21? He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. This is Paul's concluding argument. And this word that, that my Bible translates as nullify, it's the, it's the Greek verb atheteo, and it's often translated as reject. Let's, let's go over to Luke 10, where we see the word, at least in my Bible, translated that way. Luke 10 and verse 16, Jesus is speaking to 70 of his disciples who he had sent out to preach the gospel, or who he was sending out to preach the gospel. Luke 10, verse 16, Jesus says, The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you, that's the verb, atheteo, the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So there's the idea of rejection there in that word. Uh, this verb is also translated as set aside. And for that usage, let's go over to Hebrews 
chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and this is one of the warning passages of the book of Hebrews. He's exhorting the congregation he's writing to to not abandon Jesus, but to keep believing in Jesus. And he's warning them of what would happen if they did abandon Jesus. And that's a means God uses to unfailingly cause us to persevere by giving us those kinds of warnings. Let me, the, the verse that we're looking at is verse 28, but I'm going to start back at verse 26. He says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Verse 28, Anyone who has, and there's our word, atheteo, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? This Hebrews reference is especially relevant to the text we're looking at because what kind of argument is the preacher making here? He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's warning his readers against forsaking Christ. And to do that, he reminds them of what happened under the Old Covenant. What does he say happened when someone set aside the Old Covenant? They were executed. They were put to death. But then he says in verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has done what? Set aside the new covenant. But instead of using the, the word set aside, he uses much more graphic language. The, the language of trampling the Son of God, of regarding as unclean the blood of the new covenant, and of insulting the spirit of grace. But the idea of setting aside is the same. Now let's go back to Galatians 2.21 where the context is very similar. Because what are Peter and Paul being faced with? They're being faced with the question of whether or not to set aside the new covenant grace of God. And that is the very thing that the preacher in Hebrews is warning that congregation against. Don't set aside the grace of God that you have in Christ. And Paul, back in chapter 2, verse 21, is saying... I am not going to do that. Peter, you and, and the others have, you started to set your foot on that road that heads to that place. I'm not going to do that, he says. I am not going to set aside the grace of God. But what reason does Paul give for why he will not set aside the grace of God? He gives the reason in verse 21. He says, for... If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, if nothing else Paul said got through to Peter, this would. Again, just to remind us, Peter had begun to place himself back under the law of Moses. And by doing so, he was implying that the Gentiles, in order to be justified, needed to do that as well. Meaning that Jesus had not done enough meaning that men needed to lend a helping hand in their own salvation. And Paul, to defeat 
that idea in Peter's mind to just kill that thought for Peter, he says that if a man can earn a right standing before God by keeping the law, then what Jesus did was unnecessary. Now, how do you think Peter would have responded to someone ever saying to him, Jesus didn't need to die? Him dying, it was just a waste of time. Men could be made right some other way. How do you think Peter, who took a swing at a, a guy's head with a sword to defend Jesus, how do you think he would respond to any suggestion that Jesus died for nothing? That would have just galled him to the max, right? And yet Paul is saying, Peter, you are doing that yourself by your hypocrisy. You are implying that man can get to God by the works of the law but I'm telling you, Peter, that if that is true, Jesus died for nothing. That's what he's telling Peter. Now that kind of argument, you're not going to win a debate with a hardened Pharisee by that kind of argument, saying, you know, if the Pharisee who already rejects Jesus, who already thinks that you can be justified by the works of the law, it's not going to convince him for me to say, listen, if man is justified by the works of the law, Jesus died for nothing. The Pharisee would say, yeah, that's my point. You're justified by law. Christ died for nothing. You're not winning an argument. So this, this is an argument for the person who already trusts Christ, who already loves Jesus, which is Peter. Peter's not an apostate. He hasn't gone down that road. God doesn't ever let any, let any true child go all the way down that road. He turns them back, and he's turning Peter back through Paul here. Paul, or Peter is someone who loves Christ, who trusts in Christ. This kind of argument is very forceful to the one who loves Christ. To, for you to tell me that I'm living in a, such a way that mocks what Jesus did, if I really love Jesus, I'm going to sit up and say, whoa, I need to stop and reevaluate what I'm doing. I don't want to blaspheme the one I love. Paul is helping Peter to be galled at the thought of carrying through what he is beginning to carry through. In verse 21, Paul is saying, again, he's, he's just sharing what's in his own heart to help Peter remember what he himself has in Christ. Paul is saying that when he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, He's saying that he loves and reveres Jesus too much to ever even dream of suggesting such a thing. And Paul is counting on the fact that Peter also loves and reveres Jesus too much to keep acting in a way that would suggest that Jesus died for nothing. Now Paul, he's not recounting this confrontation with Peter just for the kicks, you know, He's, he's not doing it for no reason, because who is he writing to? The Galatians. And as Peter had begun to put himself back under the works of the law, what were the Galatians being tempted to do? Put themselves under the law by getting circumcised. And Paul is sharing with them what he shared with Peter so that he can get the response out of them that he got out of Peter, saying, listen, if man can be justified by works of law, then... Jesus died for nothing. That would have turned Peter around really quick. And Paul, 
he's counting on the fact that the Galatians also love Jesus too much to keep going down that road that would make a mockery of the one that they had come to trust in and love. So that's why Paul is bringing this up in the first place. Now, we've just celebrated Thanksgiving. Did any of you have any trouble thinking up something to be thankful to God for? Because sometimes someone can ask, what are you thankful for? And we're just, we think for a moment, and sometimes nothing comes to mind. But how about this? Be thankful that God has declared you righteous by his grace through faith in Christ. Be thankful that you are united to Christ's Son, or to God's Son by faith, and being united to Christ, you are free from your slavery to sin. Be thankful that you have Jesus himself dwelling inside of you by his Spirit, empowering you to live for God. And be thankful that you, the most sinful person you know, are loved by the eternal Son of God with a love that led him to lay down his life for you. Now, if you don't think that is something worth giving thanks for, then you don't know who Jesus is. In your eyes, Jesus did die for no reason. You have not yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And you have not yet experienced the contentment and joy that come from seeking refuge in him. You are still enslaved to your sin and the wrath of God remains on you. You need to wake up before it's too late. You need to turn away from your sins and you need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And when you do that, God will credit the righteousness of Christ to you. And he will forgive you and he will give eternal life to you. And you will find that once you've come to faith in Christ, you'll find that Jesus has taken up residence inside of you through his spirit. So that now you can do what you never could before, which is actually begin living for God rather than for yourself. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, you would make up for, for my weakness and my inability to uh, clearly explain your word. We thank you that we have your spirit who can do that for us. And I, I pray for that. I pray your spirit would uh, just make these things clear to everyone. May you remind us through these two verses of just how much we have been given by you through Jesus Christ. We have justification with, through him. We have freedom from sin through him. We have power to live for God through him. We, we have the love of the Son of God in him. Help us, Lord, never to, to contemplate ever walking away from him. Lord, may those truths remind us that there's nothing this world could ever give us that would be worth leaving Jesus for. And may we actually have righteous indignation over, over even the thought of turning our back on someone who's done so much for us. Lord, may you bind our wandering hearts to you. We thank you that you do that unfailingly for those who are your children. We thank you for all the means you use to accomplish that. In Jesus' name, amen.